You're listening to the Exegete Podcast by Gary Livengood. This is Lesson 3 in our series on Habakkuk. We continue on in the study of Habakkuk, uh, still in the beginning of the book, right in the first few verses. Last time we talked about the six reasons why God delays to answer prayer, and this came out of the question that Habakkuk himself asked, In verse 1, how long, O Lord, will I call you for help? And you will not hear. You will not hear. Um, And so he was very perplexed about this. And indeed, that's a a perplexing thing for believers, that sometimes uh, God delays to answer us. But this time I want to look at um, just exactly what's going on. Why is Habakkuk crying out to God? What's the problem going on? So the first four verses of chapter 1 go like this. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw, How long, O Lord, will I call for help? And you will not hear. I cry to you violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. A terrible circumstance to live in for Habakkuk and for any godly person. And and yet, Habakkuk, who sees all this trouble around him, cries out to God, of course, as he should and as we should. Um, So why is he crying out to God? Well, he sees all these things around him. Verse 2, he sees violence. Verse 3, he sees iniquity and wickedness and destruction. Again, he mentions violence, strife, and contention. And these matters were all rampant in the nation of Judah at this time. Interestingly, also in verse 2, the Hebrew word cry out can also be translated as shout or even roar. So, So Habakkuk says, I roar out to you, Lord, or I... I, uh, I shout out to you, Lord. He, he is really distraught. He's really upset. He's really perplexed over this situation. And just a question to pose, um, God's going to answer him in, in, the, in the verses coming up, uh, beginning in verse 5. But I, I want to ask, do you, ever, do you ever pray with such passion and such fervency that you just cry out to God? You shout out to God over, or, over some... Uh, very, very difficult or bad circumstance, whether in your own life, maybe a struggle with sin, or an intercessory prayer for somebody you care about, or even the condition of our nation, or maybe a situation in your church, if you have a church, and you shout out to God, Lord, why? What's going on? What are you going to do about this? That's not a bad thing at all. And remember, God does not rebuke Habakkuk for this for this questioning of him. Why aren't you doing anything, Lord? Why do I have to see all this wickedness? In fact, you might argue effectively that, that on some level God was pleased that Habakkuk was crying out, shouting out, roaring out to him, because beginning in verse 5, we see that God does indeed answer him. So he sees all these terrible things going on around him, and uh, he just can't figure out why and, and what's going to happen and how long God will allow it. Now, you might recall in, in our past lessons, we talked 
about good King Josiah. Remember, Josiah reigned from 640 to 609. And so only perhaps a couple of years after Josiah died, Habakkuk um, began his ministry. It was a very short ministry, but uh, Habakkuk had his vision and was to communicate this to the people. And we talked about the fact that under Josiah, uh, there was a great revival. At least there was intended to be a great revival. They found the book of the law, and, and Josiah had them uh, the temple uh, remodeled and reinstituted the uh, Jewish celebrations, the feasts, and especially the Passover, which Second Chronicles 34 said had not been celebrated in many years. So that great and probably most important uh, event of the Jewish year, the the uh, Passover had not been celebrated in many years. And it sounds great when you read those passages about Josiah's uh, revival, but as we, I think we've seen before, it was very, very shallow. In fact, Second Chronicles 34, 33 says, King Josiah, and here's the key word, he made all who were present in Israel to serve the Lord. Now, I'm not against Josiah doing that, uh, he was the leader of the nation, and uh, for him to create these circumstances where at least people could engage in worship and could engage in the Day of Atonement and those kind of things, I, that was a great thing. It was a great thing in, in Israel. It was a great thing in Judah. But that is interesting that the word he made them do that uh, is added there in the text. And we can see the depth or the, the lack of, of depth of this uh, revival in that immediately after Josiah died, the people returned right away to their old practices that they had been under, uh, that they had practiced under Manasseh and the other kings, and uh, even the pagan practices of the nations that had been in, in the promised land before the Jews had come in. So immediately after Josiah, there were about 23 years left for the existence of Judah from 609 to 586. And there were four kings that reigned after Josiah. They were Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah. And the word says that all four of those did evil in the sight of the Lord and really led the people right back into the sins that they had practiced before Josiah had attempted at least to bring revival to his nation. So even though we, we read that and hope for the great, a great revival there, um, it, it's over. It's over almost immediately after Josiah dies. And uh, uh, then, therefore, very quickly, Habakkuk has his vision, and the Lord says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm bringing Babylon. Listen, uh, God knew the true hearts of the Jews at the time. He knew the hearts. And even during the reign of Josiah, uh, the Lord said, I, I'm going to give you peace in your time, Josiah, because you have served me with your whole heart. You've sought me. You've tried to lead revival. So I'm going to give you peace. You're going to die in peace, and you're not going to see uh, the judgment come. But he said, I'm not going to spare Judah. I'm not going to spare this nation because God knows their hearts. And let me tell you, brother and sister, God knows your heart, too. You cannot possibly fool God. Hebrews 4.13 says, There is no creature, there is no creature hidden from his sight. 
but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Nothing can be hidden from God. And sometimes I've met even Christians who give me the impression, at least, that they think that there's, there's something they're getting away with, uh, that's something that God doesn't know about. Well, that's absolutely not true. And there's plenty of places in the scripture that declare that. Hebrews 14, 4.13, which I just read, is one of them. Certainly Psalm 139 is a, is, a, is a psalm, a chapter in which God's omniscience and omnipresence is declared. And God, by his very nature, if God is who he says he is, he must be omniscient. He must be omnipresent. He must know everything, and there cannot be one iota of power that can be separate from him. So God, because of his very nature, knows everything. And just as the Jewish people couldn't fool his, him in, in terms of their, the truth in their hearts, we can't either. So just be aware that uh, God's not fooled by anything. He knows everything that can possibly be known. And, and by the way, the other side of that, let me mention too, 2 Chronicles 6.19, the, the good news, I guess, about, about God's omniscience is that the, that verse says that he, the eyes of the Lord search throughout the earth. He's always seeking someone whose heart is completely given to him. And when God finds that person, and hopefully he finds that in you, when he finds that person, he richly and strongly blesses him. That's a great verse, that when you give yourself wholly to God, and I would refer to you, I would refer you to Romans 12, 1 there, when Paul talks about presenting yourself a living and holy sacrifice to God. In other words, actually putting yourself on the altar, not just put your stuff on the altar, put yourself on the altar before God, a living and holy sacrifice that pleases God. And we find a person that has done that, and he's always searching. He wants to strongly and greatly bless them. Now, in Judah at the time, violence was especially pervasive. Um, women were objects of abuse. The rich uh, not only exploited the poor, but violence was done to the innocent poor people. Uh, here's a horrendous thing. Children were sacrificed to false gods, uh, many times by means of, of it says, uh, uh, putting them through the fire. And, and so there's this idea of, of actually sacrificing children to false gods by burning them on some sort of altar. I can't help, uh, I can't help thinking about the, uh, the modern parallel to that, folks, and that, of course, is abortion. And I remember reading or seeing at one point uh, one of the abortive methods while the child was still in the womb was, was the saline method. And the reaction of that baby, that preborn baby, uh, in the womb was that it acted like it was being burnt. That saline caused the baby to jerk and scream, even though, in fact, it's sometimes it's been referred to as the silent scream. Uh, and, and to me, there's a, there's a, a horrible, stark uh, similarity between these two things. Um, the passing the children through the fire and the types of abortion that now any abortion of course is is wrong it's sinful it's murder the scripture is clear about that but that one in particular struck stuck out to me in the comparison of making children pass through the fire interestingly there's three places in the book of jeremiah 
where the Lord talks about this thing of making children pass through the fire and uh, killing them in, in an offering to false gods. There's three different passages. I'll, I'll read the Jeremiah 32, 35, which says, uh, They built the high places of Baal that are in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to cause their sons and daughters to pass through the fire to Molech, which I had not commanded them to do, nor had it entered my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. And there's very almost word-for-word word similar statements in Jeremiah 19.5 and also 7.31 about God talks about this sacrifice of children to false gods. In that case, it was Molech. And God says it's so horrendous to God. It's so abominable to him, and that's the term God uses. He says that doesn't, didn't even cross my mind that such a thing would happen. Now, he knew it would happen, of course, as we just noted. He's omniscient. But it was so horrible to God, so abominable to him, that he, he describes it as though even he didn't think that humans would do something that disgusting and that terrible. That's God's view on abortion. So why the violence going on? And there was tremendous violence in the time of Habakkuk going on. Why the violence? Well, when you reject God's moral law, Violence is in pretty much an inescapable result. It's going to happen. Uh, the great Old Testament scholar and commentator Walter Kaiser said this, The violence was the manifestation of the meaner, baser, and more selfish instincts of the haughty persons against the weaker elements of their culture. Their deliberate oppression exploitation and terrorization called for an equally terrorizing intervention by God. So the violence that was going on, uh, especially against the weaker elements in society, uh, was a result of the rejection of the moral law. And uh, as Kaiser notes there, the ultimate result of that, even though God shows crazy kindness and patience to his people and grace, the ultimate result is, though, there was a terror that God himself was going to send on the people of Judah, and he was going to do it as Habakkuk is going to announce to the nation of, of uh, Babylon. So the, there's four results of all this that Habakkuk talks about in verse 4. Four results. He says, therefore, the law is ignored, justice is never upheld, the wicked surround the righteous, and justice comes out perverted. Those are the four results of casting aside the moral law, and these are the things that, that Habakkuk sees going on around him. So number one, first of all, from verse four, the law is ignored. Now, one of the things that, that uh, Habakkuk is referring to here is not only the sense of, of justice not being done, but the moral law here has been ignored and the sacramental laws of the book of the law, the, the, the sacrificial laws, the, the temple laws, all those things that went along in, in uh, the law of Moses that the priests were supposed to do in, in regard to the temple and the, and the, the uh, sacrifices that the people were supposed to bring to the temple. And we talked about the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, those things were not being done. 
So you've cast aside not only the moral law, the basis of morality in the culture, you've also sacrificed, you've also cast aside the, the means of the people practicing that law. And in this case, we would say the religious means of the temple sacrifice. That's all been cast aside. And so uh, Habakkuk says here, the law is ignored. Now, it's a great, great thing because in Deuteronomy 10, God tells us through Moses what, what the good of the law is, why he gave the law. And please note this, if you're a parent, I would actually use this. I would read this or explain this to my kids because God is very careful to tell us uh, why he gave the law and the purpose of it in Deuteronomy 10, 10 through 12. Here's what it says. I, moreover, stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights like the first time, and the Lord listened to me this time. The Lord was not willing to destroy you. This is Moses. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, proceed on your journey ahead of the people, that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to, to their fathers to give them. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul? That sounds very similar to the words of Jesus, doesn't it? And then in verse 13, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, when, which I am commanding you today, for your good. So that's Deuteronomy 10, 10 to 13, actually. And God says, I want you to obey my commandments, and I'm giving you those commandments and commanding you to obey them, not because God gets some thrill out of it, but he says, this is for your good. Hey, teach your kids that. The commandments of God, they're for our good. They're not to restrain us from something that would be wonderful for us. In fact, they in fact protect us out of they protect us from self-destruction. They are a fence or a barrier to keep us away from destroying ourselves with sin. So God says again, I'm giving you these statutes and commandments for your good. Nonetheless, as we see, the law is ignored, and, and you don't have to look very far uh, to see that happening all over the United States, um, in the government, in, and all over our culture, and in the church as well, I'm sorry to say, or at least um, institutions that call themselves churches. Uh, we have in our Constitution, a, a, uh, uh, our Constitution is, is, uh, declares the rule of law. We're a representative a uh, constitutional republic, and we see the law, of the laws of the Constitution, trying to be abrogated, circumvented. Uh, when those laws, similar to the moral law, were put in place for our good. So when this happens, when the law is ignored, it means the number two result that Habakkuk mentions is justice is never upheld. Now a society bent on not only ignoring and disobeying moral law, but also attempting to reverse God's, uh, reverse God's good and his declaration of what is good and bad, that society is inevitably coming under judgment, really from two sources. One source is that society, that culture, is going to reap its own destruction 
because of the abandoning and disobeying of moral law. This is when uh, things like disease, violence, despair, hopelessness, uh, false religions pop up. And look around our culture. Why do we have so many addictions and so many people addicted to things and all sorts of things? Well, it's because, and I'm not kidding about this, we've abandoned the moral law. The moral law gives us life and leads us in principle in the way we to behave. And when we abandon that, we find despair and hopelessness. And one of the way people, people deal with um, despair and hopelessness and these problems that are so deep in our culture is they turn to addictions. But that's only one aspect of, of the two aspects of what happens to a culture who does this. We reap from our own choices, whether that's on a personal level, uh, a church level, or a national level. But the second thing is, that kind of decision-making, that kind of behavior, invites God's judgment as well. And so this is exactly where the people are in the time of Habakkuk. Uh, Habakkuk looks around. He sees violence. He sees uh, iniquity ever, everywhere. He, he sees strife, con uh, con contention, and and the destruction and people suffering horribly, well, that's the first thing. That's the reaping from abandoning the moral law. And he also is about to find out that the people of Judah are going to suffer the second aspect of that, and that is God bringing this nation of Babylon in to judge them. By the way, um, Isaiah says, this is quite a statement about Isaiah, about, by Isaiah, by God, of course, really, and he says here, uh, and, and you don't have to, again, look very far in our culture today to see this. It's all over our culture. Uh, Isaiah 5, and I'm going to read oh, 20 to 25. Isaiah, 20, Isaiah 5, 20 to 25. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, and substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Wow, do we ever see that today in our nation? I mean, constantly. Those who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. Those who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. Now here's God's uh, answer as to what's going to happen to those. Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble, and dry grass collapses into the flame, so their root will become like rot, and their blossom blow away as dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, and they have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. On this account, the anger of the Lord has burned against his people, and he has stretched out his hand against them and struck them down. And the mountains quaked, and their corpses lay like refuge, refuse in the middle of the streets, for all this, his anger is not spent, but his hand is still stretched out. Wow. That's what God thinks when we call evil good and good evil. And we substitute right for wrong and wrong for right. A very uh, desperate situation. And God reacts with strong punishment and judgment. Uh, one question worth uh, mentioning just for a moment here. And that is the question of, is every human under the same moral law? Now, we know the Jews, of course, 
they had received um, the oracles of God and they re had received the law of God and um, all the prophets spoke to them and so forth. Um, so they had a huge advantage. And Paul says in, in Romans, he says, what's the advantage of the Jew? Great in every way. And uh, we in the nation of the United States, we have certainly been incredibly blessed, probably like no nation in history, with the revealing of God's law. So is every human under the same moral law, though? And I believe the answer to that is yes. Every human is under the same moral law. You may have way, way more light uh, revealed to you about God and his law, but nonetheless, we are all under the same moral law. I believe Romans 1, 18 to 21 speaks to that. Here's what that passage says. Romans 1, 18 to 21. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they came, became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. So there's no exception there. He doesn't rule out any people. He says everyone has been aware that there's a God, and everyone has been made aware of his attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature. And within that, Paul says, they are without excuse. Without excuse in, in regard to what? To sin and righteousness. And then Paul adds in chapter 2, verses 12 to 16, he adds this. For all who have sinned without the law, so if even if you didn't have the revelation of the law, all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, that is, they didn't have the revealed God of law, law of God, when they do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves. In that they show, and here's an absolutely key statement, they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So, uh, no one can say they don't know the law or they weren't under the law. Paul very clearly in Romans 1 and 2 makes it clear that all humans are under the law. In fact, the first really three, verse, three chapters of Romans, Paul's entire argument is that every human be being is guilty. No one can escape it. So every human is under the same moral law. Okay, back to, Hebrew, uh, back to Habakkuk chapter 1. So the first result that I mentioned was the law is ignored. The second result uh, I just hinted at was the ju is justice is never upheld. Um, this is not only the result of the issues Habakkuk mentions in verses 2 and 3, but obviously um, when the law is ignored, justice is not upheld. 
and no equitable, consistent justice system can exist when the law is ignored, and it certainly didn't exist in Judah. The wicked and the wealthy crushed the weak and the poor. Bribes were common in the courts and in the political arena. We've talked about um, children being sacrificed to false gods. All sorts of immorality was going on. Oftentimes, part of the uh, rites or the rituals of false religions, pagan gods, were sexual immorality, and on and on it went. Uh, in Judah, the righteous, the poor, and the weak were exploited. And Habakkuk makes a very, very extreme statement when he says, justice is never upheld. And yet, that's the situation he found himself in. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, in a culture where justice is never upheld, you're not very far from anarchy. The third result here that Habakkuk mentions in verse 4 he says, for the wicked surround the righteous. The implication clearly is that the enemies of the righteous are closing in on the righteous. Uh, all surrounding them, closing them in upon them. And uh, certainly from a human perspective, that can't be good, right? The wicked have surrounded the righteous. Here's a passage from Jeremiah that uh, really gives uh, a very very real and, and practical uh, aspect of the wicked surround the righteous. Listen to this from Jeremiah 26, and I want to read uh, the first, um, first 11 verses. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, look at that name there, the son of Josiah. So Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, but he was an evil king, the, the word of the Lord came saying, Thus says the Lord, Stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah who have come to worship in the Lord's house. All the words that I have commanded you, Jeremiah, speak them. And it's interesting that God adds this. Do not omit a word. If you're a preacher or teacher of the word, that command is to you. God says you need to preach the whole counsel of God. Not just the passages you like, not just the New Testament, not just things about how God loves us. Friends, do not omit a word. Verse 3, perhaps they will listen and everyone will turn from his evil way. Then I may repent of the calamity which I am planning to do to them because of the evil of their deeds. And thus you will say to them, Jeremiah, thus says the Lord, if you will not listen to me to walk in my law, which I have set before you, to listen to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I have been sending to you again and again, but you have not listened, then I will make this house like Shiloh, and the city I will make a curse to all the nations of the earth. Verse 7, the priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking this word, these words in the house of the Lord. And when Jeremiah had finished speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, the priests and the prophets and all the people seized him, saying, You must die. Doesn't sound like they're going to obey, right? Verse 9. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, This house will be like Shiloh, and this city will be desolate without inhabitant? And all the people gathered about Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. When the officials of Judah heard these things, they came up from the king's house to the house of the Lord and sat in the entrance of the new gate of the Lord's house. And then the priests and the prophets spoke to the officials 
and to all the people, saying, A death sentence for this man, for he has prophesied against this city, as you have heard in your hearing. Well, the Lord delivers Jeremiah, and he's not, uh, he's not uh, murdered at this point. But you see the very real aspect of Jeremiah being surrounded by the wicked, uh, surrounded and ready to be killed. Uh, similarly, in Psalm 22, a tremendous psalm, one of my personal favorites, because Psalm 22 is a phenomenal uh, prophecy about the crucifixion. Um, in, in a thousand years before Christ, David makes this prophecy, and it gives a phenomenal details about the process of the crucifixion. It's about Jesus on the cross. Well worth studying on its own, of course. But listen to this. Again, the idea here is the wicked surrounding the, the righteous. Psalm 22, 11, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me, that's not really dogs, but that's the uh, metaphor. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So not only some remarkable uh, prophecy about specific events that, that happened at the crucifixion of Christ, but also this, this uh, idea of the, the wicked surrounding, wicked surrounding the righteous. That's what happens when truth is abandoned and moral law is abandoned in a culture. I want to mention one, I think, and we could use many, but one contemporary parallel. Uh, I'm a pastor, and uh, not too long ago, we received document, documents from one of our denominational leaders on how to prepare for the issue of same-sex couples demanding church usage for marriage. And I'll never forget his words. He says, it's coming, it will happen. And the idea here was this culture surrounding the church, demanding that, they, that the church give up its beliefs, give up the moral law, so that we can accomplish or accommodate the desires of the world. Again, he said, it's coming, it will happen. And I was thankful that uh, they gave uh, actually literally uh, legal documents to the pastors to have in place and ready to go. But you can see there the culture, the wicked surrounding the righteous. Very disturbing picture. And then the fourth, the fourth aspect of this verse 4, uh, Habakkuk says, Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Justice comes out perverted. Uh, perverted here, the Hebrew word perverted means uh, to bend or to twist, and I understand this is the only usage of this particular Hebrew word in the entire Old Testament. Uh, and it comes here in a description of how justice is tr treated, perverted, bent, or twisted. So the justice, through the judicial means that were supposed to protect people, was completely perverted to hurt people and uh, to uh, 
give advantage to those who were already in, in places of power and wealth. There's quite a description of a similar circumstance. It wasn't at exactly the same time in Jewish history, but Micah refers to this problem in a different area of justice not being done. And this is what Micah says in Micah 2 about the uh, justice system. He says, Woe to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. When morning comes, they do it. And why do they do it, friends? Here's why. Micah says, For it is in the power of their hands. They covet fields, and they seize them, and houses, and take them away. They rob a man in his house, a man and his inheritance. Now, if you're in Micah, look down at Micah 2.8. Recently, my people have arisen as an enemy. You strip the robe off the garment from unsuspecting passers-by, from those returned from war. Interesting there, isn't it? Men who ret returned from war were supposed to be treated with respect and kindness, but it wasn't happening. Verse 9, the women of my people you evict, each one from her pleasant house, and from her children you take my splendor forever. Now flip over to Micah 3, and I'm going to read verses 9 to 11. Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. Her priests instruct for a price. And her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and they say, Oh, is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. Therefore, God says, on account of you, you evildoers, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins. And the mountain of the temple will become high places of a forest. And by the way, that is exactly what happened. As you can read about in Jeremiah 52, Babylon came in and did those things that Micah mentioned there to Judah, to Jerusalem, and to the temple. Think about that. People devour each other. They denounce one another to the authorities. Everyone blames the others. And in this way, they seek to avert responsibility for themselves. So there you go. Those are the four problems that Micah was seeing, and he mentioned in verse 4, that result from the law being abandoned. And this is why he was crying out, How long, O Lord? And Lord, what are you going to do about this? Well, the next time we're going to hear, beginning in verse 5, what God says. And we might uh, title that session, Be Careful What You Ask For. And we'll see how God responds to Habakkuk's request. Thank you for listening. God bless you.